0: wanted to add a quick note before we get started. This episode was recorded via Zoom, and sound levels do change throughout the episode. Hello, and thank you for tuning into EMICcast. This is Kate Rodman, brand new MS4 at OHSU. I think we are all aware that this year's application cycle is going to be incredibly unique as COVID has changed the landscape of just about everything this past year. Due to this, there's a lot of uncertainty for students who are applying this cycle, and there's a lot of information circulating of varying authenticity and accuracy. Given this, I thought it was a great time to sit down with the OHSU Emergency Medicine Program Director, Dr. David Jones. This episode is not meant to provide all the answers or be your sole form of, of advising. My intent was just to provide more information to students so that they can use it to help form their decisions this application cycle. Without further ado, here is Dr. David Jones.
1: Hi, everybody. My name is David Jones. I am the new program director at OHSU this year, and uh, what a year to step into the role, right? You know, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about what the application cycle is gonna look this year. And the truth is that no one knows for sure. One of the important things to take away from this talk is that while Everybody is doing their best to make sure that training wheels go forward and that the process works. No one, not me, not other programs, not the uh, council of residency directors, anyone knows exactly how it's going to turn out. And a lot of how it's going to turn out is going to be decided by the behaviors of the students and the behaviors of of the program. So by acting responsibly and kind of participating in the well-intentioned advice that that is being provided by a lot of people who have thought things through, you can be part of the solution and help maximize emergency medicine training for the most number of people.
0: All right. Well, I have some kind of preformed questions for you that I'm just going to read off, and starting with my first one is revolving around, I think, the source of anxiety for a lot of students, the slow. So now that students have one slow, or some applicants will only have, will have zero, there's an increased emphasis on letters of recommendation. Should we prioritize letters from EM faculty, or will letters from other specialties be viewed equally?
1: If possible, I would say that you should prioritize letters from EM faculty. The truth is that as much as, you know, your your surgical attending and your pediatrics attending thinks they know what we do, they have no idea. And so if you can get letters of recommendation from EM faculty, that is going to be a, a little bit stronger evaluation than, than a general letter of recommendation. That being said, because, again, there are going to be variation on how the application cycle and how the the rotation cycle is working, there's a good chance that out of those four letters of recommendation that you can submit, some of them aren't going to be EM faculty. The the benefit of that actually is that, while the EM faculty can look at you from a clinical context and say like, this person has been able to do this kind of thing very well, it translates well to the emergency department, a lot of the non-EM faculty will be able to weigh in on some of the other characteristics that you may have. They may be able to talk about your tenacity, about your willingness to practice. You know, the the truth is that on an EM rotation, you may work with several different faculty over the course of your rotation and, you know, at most work with one, maybe two for more than one shift. Whereas if you work with an internist for two weeks and they can comment on how, over that time, you sought out feedback, you were able to improve your skills at history taking, whatever. That demonstration of growth that another specialty can show really will benefit you and be a, a factor that we, as residency program leadership, will want to see and want to hear about that might not be reflected in a single rotation
0: slow. All right, that's good good context. And as many of us know, CORD, EMRA, and many of the other emergency medicine groups issued a joint statement that students should only do one EM rotation that can yield an official slow. Do you think students who are pursuing more than one official slow will be viewed poorly or um, viewed differently than students who just go for that one slow?
1: That's really hard to say. And I do I don't know for sure. I actually, just before we got on here was filling out a survey from CORE, DESEP, AEM, um, EMRA, all the rest about kind of some of these issues. And one of the questions was exactly this. Like if a student has more than one letter, what is the perception going to be? And I don't know. You know, there's, on the one hand, you could argue that that multiple letters is going to provide more information for the program to kind of assess where that student stands. On the other hand, you could argue that, you know, more than one letter demonstrates kind of a, a selfishness and that it, you're not looking out for kind of the, the greater good and greater need. Then on top of that, we have certain programs, you know, there, there's a program in New York, there's a program in LA that actually for that university, their home institution has two separate emergency departments with two separate programs. And their students typically rotate a little bit at both and get from, get slows from both. So if it is a, if it's still a home rotation, but there's two of them, does that count? Should that be weighed against? And so the truth is that there's all kinds of variations here that no one really, I think, has a clear answer to how that is going to be perceived. And I suspect that every program is gonna look at it and perceive it a little bit differently, both in the context of the individual student and in the context of all of the applications.
0: Interesting, I hadn't known that some schools are able to provide two individual rotations for their students.
1: As an example, Harvard actually in Boston is affiliated with like four different residency programs at Beth Israel, at Deaconess, at whatever the main hammer program is, all of those are technically a home rotation in that case. And so, you know, they could theoretically get four slows all from home rotations, but is that the right thing? If they don't, and and those open spots then go to waste, is that the right thing? I, I don't have a good answer for that.
0: Yeah, I, I know that a lot of the answers in this case will be kind of an I don't know um, situation, and I appreciate your insight on that so much. When we are going about asking for letters, of recommendation, should we use EMRA's OSLO format that they've released? This would be particularly for non-EM faculty, or do you think we should just pursue a kind of a standard letter format? I think that
1: the the... The OSLO asks some of the same similar questions that the ESLO does. And I think both formats will provide the information needed. The OSLO is gonna look a little bit more familiar to EM leadership. Whereas the standard letter will look a little bit more like just a standard letter recommendation. That I think less important than the actual format is going to wind up being what the context and the content of that letter is. So again, if this is this is, goes back to that very first question that we had, that if you have a an advisor from I don't know otolaryngology who's worked with you for four years and is like, I've worked on a, a project with this student, I have worked with them clinically, I worked with them in a small group, and I've really seen them grow and develop. I think that that content is going to outweigh the format no matter what. On the other hand, if you have someone that you like, yeah, I just had a a really good relationship with this person, but they have not, you know, they they're not going to be able to provide some of that other content, then maybe the Oslo that is a more directed set of answers might provide the easier to digest format. So again, there there's Unfortunately, what I'm for a lot of this what I'm giving you is there's not a clear answer, at least not at this point, but part of that's because no one knows the clear answers.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like the Oslo can kind of lend some structure to letter writers who may not have some additional information to like flush out. Correct. Okay. Correct. And with the loss of additional slows, I know as program directors, you guys are used to seeing two or three slows. Will other aspects of our application be emphasized more, such as our personal statement?
1: I think so. You know, the, the one of the benefits of the slow was that it evaluated you in the clinical context. Well, we have other, other options for evaluating the clinical context that are not intrinsically EM based, but still can evaluate your clinical skills. So I think that the, you know, the clinical grades are going to take on a little bit more of an important point. I, I think that the personal statement is going to take on a little bit more of a, a role, although not necessarily in the same way that, that we typically think about it. One thing that, that we are thinking about doing here at OHSU is actually asking for a paragraph on the personal statement talking about why you're interested in Oregon, why you're interested in OHSU. And so specifically actually asking that personal statement to be a little bit tailored towards OHSU so that we don't have, you know, the deluge of applicants who are throwing out hundreds of applications because they can this year knowing that they won't necessarily have to travel. So we want really to look at who's actually interested in coming to OHSU and who's someone that might be interested in staying here. And so the personal statement in that context is not going to, it's gonna be emphasized differently than it has in the past, not necessarily more or less, but almost like criteria to be further considered.
0: Okay, it's that chance to show true interest in a program. Right.
1: And actually I would, I would say that that, you know, the personal statement is because it can be whatever you say. Like I realize that if you apply to 30 programs, writing 30 personal statements would be tough, but adapting the personal statement to demonstrate actual interest in the programs that you're applying to is a worthwhile thing to consider in the context of this uncertain, uncertain application cycle because programs are going to want to interview people who, Are interested in the program, not just people who are able to interview because they don't have to fly here.
0: All right. And then I have maybe some people's least favorite question. Do you think that board scores will come into play more as PDs look for a way to sift through this increased application volume?
1: I don't think that... Anybody, if they have a minimum cutoff, I don't think that anyone is going to change that minimum cutoff just by virtue of, of kind of how emergency medicine works. I do think that because there are going to be different aspects of the application that barring a say, barring a strong letter of recommendation that the board score will have to be weighted a little bit more you know, one of the things about emergency medicine is that we know that step two is more clinically oriented than step one. And so we tend to, you know, uh, applicants that have step two scores that far outweighs the step one score. We also know that all either step really tests is your ability to take a test. You can be a very good resident and have very mediocre board scores, but you can also be a, very poor resident have very good board scores and a very poor resident and have very poor board scores and every other combination thereof. And so I think that it will be a contributing factor. And I think that it will, you know, as we look at the whole application more holistically, because a lot of programs kind of downplayed the ability of board scores to predict resident success, but now we're looking at the application in a greater context, there may be an inadvertent greater evaluation of those board scores. Although I do think it will be inadvertent and I don't think that it'll be a intentional move to eliminate certain, certain students or anything like that.
0: So not like consciously like shifting necessarily cutoffs or things like that. I agree. As most of our listeners will know, this year's interviews will be virtual which opens up the potential for students to accept many more than normal due to the decreased costs and less time commitment. Do you think it's possible to enforce an interview limit, which is a idea that's been thrown about, or will it mainly just rely on students' goodwill?
1: I think that there is a there's certainly discussion about enforcing an interview limit and, you know, the the numbers that I've most recently heard batted about were that we should strongly recommend students to limit to 12, that we should make a limit of 17 with an exception for couples matching students and for students at high risk of not matching. The question that you just asked about how would we enforce that, I, I don't know. The idea I think is good. The truth is that no matter what happens, you know, there's only so many interview spots and there's only so many match spots. And so whether you interview at one program or 20 programs, ultimately you're going to only match to one program. And so if we look at it from a population standpoint, taking fewer interviews allows more students to interview, which then allows more students to ultimately match. That's kind of like, uh, what is it? The, the paradox of plenty in economics, like if all the farmers have a bumper crop, no one makes any money because the prices go way down. But if one farmer does, that person does well. If everybody takes 40 interviews, then like the top 10% are going to interview at you know 40 different places. Um, each of those pre- people is going to match at one place, and there's going to be a bunch of programs that are unfilled and a bunch of students that don't match. On the other hand, if everybody takes 12 interviews, then... The vast majority of students are going to match, the vast majority of programs are going to fill, and we're going to keep going at a, at a good pace. And so I think it's important that everybody takes a honest look, every student takes an honest look at what their competitiveness is, working with their advisors, working with their program directors that's available, working with whatever to really get an idea of where they fall. And from that recommendation, tailor their application number and interview number to an appropriate level.
0: So we can kind of have mutual mutual benefit by thinking about this kind of more critically in, in that setting. Absolutely.
1: Okay.
0: Well, kind of to piggyback off that, as a program director, do you think programs are going to have to conduct a lot more interviews this year?
1: I think that there's a good chance that many programs are going to conduct some more interviews, which which opens up more interview spots, which is good. But let's say on a typical year, you know, a program interviews 100 people, and this year they're going to interview 300. Well, they're still going to only match their like original 10 number or something like that. So that means that every interviewer every extra interview doesn't necessarily increase that pro- person's probability of matching in fact it would decrease that person's probability of matching at that program and so
0: in emergency medicine,
1: one of our big jobs is risk stratification. So if we think of applications as a risk and students risk stratifying, it's important that they again think about where they are in the application pool because more interviews by a by a given program, there's still a good chance that the best applicants will be at the top of the rank list and the you know worst applicants will be at the bottom of the rank list, no matter how many people you wind up interviewing. And so kind of it becomes very, very important that as a, as a student, as an applicant, you know whether you are in that upper pool or lower pool so that if you – I'm totally getting off the topic of this question, aren't I? You were asking about programs, and I'm going back to the students.
0: But you're talking about kind of the innate issue at hand, which is yeah. knowing your competitiveness, competitiveness this year is going to be kind of your greatest uh, decision-making tool.
1: Absolutely. It's going to be, it's far and away going to be the thing that helps you as a learner the most. Because if you, if you know that, you know what, you had an amazing clinical rotation and you, you know, won a Nobel prize and you, you know, got a 600 on step one. Like, I didn't know that's not even possible, but you got it somehow and cured AIDS. Like those things, that person is going to go wherever they want, regardless of what they do. On the other hand, the person who just kind of squeaked by, they're going to have a little bit more of a challenge. And so knowing what your competitiveness is and what your strengths are is going to really help you out. The person who has just mediocre application but has, has done amazing things in, you know, they're, they're personable, they can get along with people, they're a team builder, things like that. You know, a lot of those in emergency medicine,
0: those non not quite quantifiable factors like personality and things like that.
1: You know, one of the most important factors in the emergency department is your ability to work as part of the team, you know, your ability to work with the nurses. Um, I would rather take like a a B plus overachiever who gets along with everybody than an A plus asshole. Like that is far and away. Sorry. You may have to, (laughs) (laughs) I'll say it a different way to a, so that we're not swearing. (laughs) I would rather take a B plus overachiever who gets along well with the team than an A plus student who actually cannot communicate with his team members in a nice way. Because the, the, the person who's gonna ultimately be the most successful in emergency medicine probably is the person who can function as part of a team.
0: All right. Well, now to kind of spotlight you, what are, you know, PD's fears for this year's application cycle.
1: One of our fears is that it's some of the stuff that we've already talked about, that because there, that historically the cost of travel was a disincentive, to massive application and acceptance of interviews. And because that has gone away, one of our concerns is that people are going to one, funnel the money that they had previously expected to spend on travel into more applications. So now instead of the top tier student instead of applying to 20 to 30 programs they're going to apply to 80 programs and then because they're a top tier student they're going to get invited to all 80 of those programs and they're going to select to go to 40 of those interviews and what that means is that one of the concerns that that all program directors as a whole have right now is that because of that capability programs inadvertently are going to interview just the top you know 20 30% of applicants And that means that there's going to be a whole ton of students that don't get interviews. And B, there's going to be when time comes for rank list, everybody's rank list is going to look exactly the same. And we're going to have a bunch of programs that don't wind up filling. The SOAP is not designed for massive filling of programs. You know, it's designed for a couple one-off students and a couple one-off programs. And so one of the concerns that we have is that things are going to kind of spiral out of control. And the structure of the interview season is going to be so disrupted that the structure of the match season is going to be so disrupted that we're going to wind up with holes everywhere
0: that's a terrifying idea (laughs) yeah
1: going back to what we were talking about kind of knowing your own competitiveness and knowing where you stand if you don't know that if you don't have a, a good advisor or you don't meet with an advisor or you ignore that advisor's advice if you are even an excellent candidate who's got some worry You're going to tack on an extra 15 programs to your application, and then you're going to interview at an extra five or 10. And while on an individual student level, that doesn't affect a whole lot. You know, if we have, I mean, I think last year we had 2,400 applications. If every one of those students tried to tack on four more interviews, we'd have an extra 10,000 interviews that were necessary. And, And we just can't do that. You know, and that's, that's physically not possible for us to do that. And so our fear is that, our concern is that these students' fears are going to just rip up
0: the whole spectrum. Okay. Have a, a snowball effect as exactly. are Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, med students are a little predisposed to anxiety, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you don't get this far by not being. Yeah. So trying to control those our own fears to prevent this kind of mass, as I said, snowball effect when it comes to interviews. So any recommendations for how students can stand out in this year's application cycle?
1: Like I said, there, there still are going to be some of the standards, you know, and so every program is going to have certain things that they kind of emphasize. There's going to be programs in... Cincinnati and Pittsburgh that feel strongly about EMS. You know, that's, that's kind of one of their big things. There's going to be programs in Miami and, and New Mexico that feel strongly about toxicology. There's going to be programs in Chicago and Wisconsin that feel strongly about flight medicine. Like, so each program is going to have their kinds of things. And so the the same kind of advice that, that, we give now is the the kind of advice that we would have given in the past too, that it's going to be important that before you just shotgun an application, that you look at what that program bills itself as and decide, is this the kind of program that actually someone like me would want to go to? If you are looking for a community-based program, don't apply to a bunch of academic programs. You know, while, while you might find that there's one or two that you like, if you generally have decided that academics is not the kind of training program that you're interested in, maybe that's not the kind of place to go to. And so the, the things that are going to really stand out, I think, are the students this year that really align themselves and what, what they're interested in and what the programs are looking for. Similarly, I think that this is going to be a year, because of the lack of, of rotators through different programs and things like that, where there's gonna be a lot of going with what you know. And so programs that have rotators go through them, I think that there's gonna be a lot of like, yeah, you know, we didn't get to see these other people in person, but we do know this person, they worked hard and they did well. So I think that that there's gonna be a lot of kind of, I don't wanna say preference, but a, a little bit of a bias towards home rotators at this time. And what that unfortunately means is that those applicants that don't have a home institution are going to have to work extra hard to try to find those open spots that they can go to in order to kind of experience what a residency is like
0: all right any other kind of thoughts or statements for students i think
1: students need to know that the programs are nervous too that this is you know that that everything from the the lack of rotators now to the virtual interviews, to the fact that, you know what, until you match, sorry, until you arrive as an intern, I'm not gonna be able to actually look you in the eye personally. That, those are all concerns. You know, one of the concerns is that we're gonna have a bunch of people that haven't seen the sites, don't know what what the department looks like, and they're going to match and they're gonna get here and they're not gonna like it. So while I know that that is a concern for the students, that I'm going to go somewhere and I'm not going to like it, that's a terrifying thought for the programs, that we're going to have a bunch of students that, you know, get three months into the residency and decide, this place isn't for me, I'm going to take off. And that's not how we want to conduct business. And so the, the same kinds of concerns that students are having are the concerns that programs are having. And everybody's just trying to do their best. And we're, we're all optimistic about how it's going to turn out and we are gonna do everything we can to really show you what we have, and we're gonna try to be honest about that. And I I really ask that students also be honest about who they are. You know, that it's okay to, you know, not polish quite as much in order to kind of really show that yes, you would fit in here or no, you wouldn't, rather than demonstrating what you think people want to see. You know, this is a year where actually, you know, even though they're virtual, things like the the residency fairs through SAM, like they have the SAM and EMRA have the remote mentorship programs and stuff like that. This is a a year where stuff like that is really going to be a benefit to a lot of students because they will be able to kind of get those multiple data points and and talk to not just the OHSU students aren't just going to talk to me and to... Nick Villalon and Lainey ars they're going to be able to talk to me, the, the three of us, but also someone from, you know, Kansas and someone from UW and someone from San Diego and someone from Miami and someone from New York and, and kind of have opportunities to, to really talk to a variety of different sources um, in order to figure out what it is that could be A, make them sparkle a little bit and B, what each program really has to offer and how they would fit in in those programs. And so it's going to take a little bit more footwork necessarily, but it is a chance to really hone in on competitiveness and on style and on desires and things like that. And and so I, I encourage people to take advantage of all of those resources.
0: Okay. Well, as I mentioned, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I hope this can help students as they approach the application cycle and make the decisions that kind of mutually benefit everyone. So thank you.
1: You bet.